This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Are there limits to what can be said on college campuses? When a far right-wing speaker is disinvited to speak on campus, is it an issue of free speech? What about if it's a far left-wing speaker? My guest today, Neil Hutchins, explores these issues in his research and writing. We have some research that would indicate that most college professors or a lot of college professors are left-leaning politically. But I think that's a very distinct issue from whether or not institutions are more apt to shut down conservative speakers. I think something that would have to go into consideration of that issue, and I will admit my view on this, is I think that there are certain groups that have really seized upon the idea of free speech as political camouflage for other issues. I think Turning Point USA is a great example for that, um, really using the idea of speech to push forward a political agenda. Ultimately, His look at the legal issues facing universities when it comes to free speech and academic freedom go to the very heart of the purpose of higher education. What are colleges for? I think where we're seeing somewhat of a pushback is that you have other advocates for certain kinds of values, including the educational mission, say these things don't align with the educational mission. And if we look at that educational mission, we evaluate the quality of speech and ideas every day. Students don't earn certain grades because of the quality of the speech, because the ideas are deemed bad or shoddy. Neil Hutchins serves as professor and chair in the University of Mississippi School of Education's Department of Higher Education. His latest opinion piece on campus free speech laws was published in The Conversation in April. Neil Hutchins, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. I'm very happy to be here. So about two years ago, Ann Coulter, um, her appearance at the University of California, Berkeley, was canceled. Why was this event canceled? So Ann Coulter, who is very much a conservative pundit, uh, likes to play that role of lightning rod, conservative lightning rod, was invited by a student group at University of California, Berkeley, to appear on campus Berkeley is, of course, historically a center of free speech and expression and protest. That goes back to the student rights movements, movement of the 1960s. Essentially what happened when, with Coulter appearing on campus, and it, and it was at a time that has continued of a lot of tension on campuses about certain kinds of speakers, especially, I would say, even speakers that push the envelope more than Coulter, but certainly people like Coulter who want to to... Um, advance a certain agenda. They want to really hit people's buttons. They want to incite. They want to be provocative. So essentially what happened with there, there was a disagreement over where to have have the event. The university was worried about not just supporters of Coulter, but individuals who were opposed to her, so counter-protesters. And that's happened at UC Berkeley several times in the last couple of years, Certainly, and it's something we could talk about later, what happened at the University of Virginia and in Charlottesville, where we had riots that became deadly. So you had neo-Confederate white nationalist protesters and counter-protesters. So it's something that we have seen in the last several years that at certain times colleges and universities have speakers on campus, not just controversial, but institutions really have to worry about issues of safety for their students and for others attending. And so with Ann Coulter, it was really became a dispute over when to have the event, where to have the event, 
you, you had disagreements over whether she was be, being denied access, but essentially pulled out. Later, there was some litigation involving the student groups and others that had supported her being there with the university that was settled in 2018, where the university agreed to pay some attorney fees, but said, essentially, we're not having to change anything. We're just, we're, we're, we're entering into this a settle, settlement to avoid paying um, a larger amount. But you also had a group, the groups that a supporter said, this is a great victory for free speech rights. So that got a lot of headlines also at, at uh, Berkeley and at other places. You've had Mio Yiannopoulos, um, you've had Richard Spencer, Sometimes um, Charles Murray, who who is another speaker that has gained headlines, and you've had individuals protesting their appearance on campus. But this is kind of a dynamic. It, it, it gains a lot of headlines, but that we've seen played out on college campuses, especially in recent years. It's not necessarily new issues of speech and expression and protest. They've been going on for decades at college campuses, but it's really taken on a new profile and a new level of attention at in, in recent years. And I think some of that is probably because we have certain kinds of organizations that are really pushing certain kinds of speakers on campus. I think they have a political agenda behind it. But that's a way, I think, to kind of contextualize what was happening with Ian Coulter's appearance that did not happen at UC Berkeley. So with the for the University of Berkeley or, or UC Berkeley, the, the university, the administration was concerned about student safety, and that was the sort of reasoning for canceling the event, not the issue of trying to limit free speech. Is that is that how they, they interpret what happened? I think that if you talk with the leadership of the institution, that would very much be their view, is that instead of trying to regulate the content of the speech or the viewpoints expressed, the, the institution has an interest in safety. It also has an interest in keeping on the everyday functioning of the institution going, even while you have uh, speaking events going on. Now, Coulter and her supporters would have challenged that, no, the institution is trying to shut down views because it doesn't like us. Again, I think a, a, a point could be made that I think sometimes for speakers like Coulter or the, the organizations, especially some of the national ones that support her, they also get a lot of mileage out of being allowed on campuses. In other words, they're pushing to be provocative. So that that really is part of the agenda, I think, if you peel back a little bit and, and examine it. But for institutions, by and large, and, and especially for public institutions, something that we'll probably chat about soon is that they do have special legal responsibilities under the First Amendment where, where they're limited uh, in being able to pick and choose speakers based on liking or disliking the message that they're delivering. For instance, when Penn State University decided to not allow Richard Spencer, who's a white nationalist on campus, in its announcement, the university made very clear that its concern over safety was the guiding rationale for not allowing Spencer on campus. It, it, it said in the statement the university did that the university and its leadership were totally against all of his views. They were in opposition to any, any kind of values of the university, but it said, we're not seeking to not have him on campus because of the views, but because of the safety issues. And that's something that gets muddled in a lot of these debates is that institutions, you'll have um, fingers pointed at them that, that with the accusation that they're really trying to stifle speech, 
But that can get muddled into the fact that they're also really trying to regulate speech on campus in a way to, again, ensure safety and also all the other kinds of things that are happening on a college campus from classes to other events. And that's not to say that institutions don't violate these standards. I do think that institutions sometimes will overstep or overreach when it comes to regulating speech on campus, but but that's certainly not always the case. And I think there are a lot of college administrators that they want to uphold the law and they want to make sure they're following their policies and practices. Do you think that, you know, when some of these institutions do overstep the regulation of speech, as you say, is there sort of a bias against, um, you know, right wing conservative um, discourse and ideologues who come onto campus? Because, you know, you 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 hear about the Spencers and the Coulters, but you you rarely hear about you know big um, events on campus that cause the same sort of political storm of more left leaning or progressive thinkers that are also being invited on campus. I think that one that would be a really interesting area of empirical study. So, for instance, we have some research that would indicate that most college professors or a lot of college professors are left leaning politically. But I think that's a very distinct issue from whether or not institutions are more apt to shut down conservative speakers. I think something that would have to go into consideration of that issue, and I will admit my view on this, is I think that there are certain groups that have really seized upon the idea of free speech as political camouflage for other issues. I think Turning Point USA is a great example for that. Um, really using the idea of speech to push forward a political agenda. I think that in the current presidential administration, we've seen that. For instance, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, when he was um, in the part of the Trump administration, came out very forcefully for free speech. I'm a native of Alabama. I remember that when Jeff Sessions was a political leader in Alabama, he tried to block LGBTQ student organizations and events. And so I think that there's been a narrative put forth that colleges and universities are seeking to block conservative speakers because I really think it benefits a larger political agenda. And and I do think there are some counterexamples we can consider. So for instance, we certainly have private colleges and universities that do regulate student speech very heavily. One example would be Liberty University. So the president of Liberty University is a very strong supporter of President Trump. Liberty University has been noted on several occasions for censoring student journalists. There have also been issues in the past about the student Democrats on campus. So that would be one example. For our religious colleges and universities, that often do get left out of the conversation from from certain groups. There's been a lot of debate and struggle over uh, LGBTQ student organizations and not allowing those on campus. I'll give you another example of how this can often play out. So Tennessee is a state, like several other states, that has enacted a campus speech law. So the idea was, and if you look at the supporters in Tennessee, the legislature said, we need this law because Colleges and universities are often censoring conservative speakers. So we have a law in place in Tennessee. At the same time that this, or roughly at the same time that this law has been passed and enacted, 
you'll find that legislators and others in Tennessee have really been against an event called Sex Week at the University of Tennessee, which is sponsored by a student organization. And so that would be an example. I mean, you find you find these examples again and again of where, you know, and you can find them on the political left or the political right. But certainly the idea that only conservative ideas can can be a threat in relation to free speech. Another example would be that we had uh, former Senator um, Kerry, who was invited to give a commencement speech at Creighton University. And the Republican leadership in that state said, no, 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 he shouldn't be allowed to give the commencement speech. And he actually pulled out. And so so that's an example of how it can that, that really these threats to speech can come from either side of the political spectrum. Uh, PEN America, which uh, among its roles as an advocacy organization, promotes freedom of speech and expression it issued a report recently that I think is really informative, and it talks about there's really not a free speech crisis on America's college campuses, but there are threats that exist, and these threats can come from either side of the political aisle, and also the fact that that I think that certain organizations have really pushed this idea of a free speech threat to advance a, an agenda that really has other political components to it that's much different than, say, for instance, the American Civil Liberties Union, which I think, if, if you look at their stance on free speech ideas, tends to be more neutral. Whatever, whatever the nature of the speech is, there are certain protections that should adhere to it. Another example of, I think, a more neutral party in a lot of the free, campus free speech debates would be the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, as it's often called. It's become a really pivotal player in campus speech debates. So so FIRE will tend to take heat, I notice, from both the political left and the political right, because they tend to advocate kind of for either side. You know, an interesting thing, for instance, would be if you look at, go to a site like Turning Point USA and see the kind of litigation they're supporting you'll see it coming from one side of the political spectrum. It tends to be if you take an organization like FIRE or even the ACLU, you'll see that they'll become involved in speech cases that might be labeled the political left or the right, or really that don't fit any in our, our conventional notions of the political spectrum in the United States. So, uh, you know, a lot of this obviously has to deal with the First Amendment, the freedom to for, or for speech or of speech. But we also know that, you know, American higher education is filled with public universities and private universities and religiously affiliated universities. How does, you know, what are some of the legal issues that are circulating within these different types of institutions when it comes to speech and protecting speech? So that's a really important distinction that can get lost in a lot of these conversations. For public colleges and universities, the First Amendment, which is often talked about, what that means is that they're part of the government. When I teach a class on education law and I have people that work at public colleges and universities, I'll say, raise your hand if you work for the government. And a lot sometimes people don't really raise their hands. And I'll, I'll say, raise your hand if you work for so-and-so institution, which is a public institution. And I'll say, you work for the government. You're part of the government. And so to work at a public college or university means that you are part of the government. 
And under the First Amendment, there are limits on what the government can do in relation to the speech rights of individuals. And that holds true at public colleges and universities. So a lot of the speech debates that um, have grabbed the headlines, for instance, they've involved where student groups or others have invited a speaker onto campus. And in those kinds of situations where a college or university has created what's often called a forum, a space for a particular kind of speech, usually under the First Amendment, outside of some, some pretty narrow exceptions, the government doesn't get to pick and choose messages. And so, for instance, I, let's say that I'm an administrator at a public college or university, and we have a policy that student groups can invite speakers to campus. We, we've said any recognized student group is allowed to reserve certain space on campus for speakers. Now, they have to be a recognized student group. They have to make sure that they do the application to reserve the space. They have to follow other kinds of rules. If they have done that, and I see Ann Coulter is scheduled to speak on campus, I, as an administrator at a public college or university, cannot decide. I don't like the views of Ann Coulter, so I'm just not going to let Ann Coulter speak. Those are the kinds of things that, that are just very much textbook elementary examples of violations of the First Amendment. Now, in the case of Richard Spencer or the events that we saw at the University of Virginia, those start to be harder questions because I actually think that that's where institutions have to look at the fact that these speakers are not really engaged in speech as much as they're engaged in in threats. And so what are called true threats, or sometimes you'll hear the terms direct threats, those are protected by the First Amendment. And so I think where institutions are wrestling, when you have various groups that are wanting to bring speakers onto campus that not just controversial, but that are really crossing over into threats. At my own institution, the University of Mississippi, we really recently wrestled with that issue. We're, of course, in Mississippi, which is in the Deep South. This is an institution that really has a historical legacy to deal with in terms of segregation. Um, our institution in, in the last several years has removed the state flag from campus. But for instance, we have confederal, uh, Confederate monuments on campus, which we're in the process of probably relocating. We had neo-Confederates come to campus. Um, people really didn't want them here, but the institution was left with, how do you regulate that in the First Amendment? And these neo-Confederate groups I think really the institution had to really look closely at them and engage in a lot of outreach to see, was their rhetoric really speech that the university couldn't regulate on content grounds, or was it crossing over into threat? And that's some of what institutions are having to deal with. And after Virginia, where we had a counter-protester who was killed in the events that happened at the University of Virginia, it shows that institutions have to take that very seriously. When Richard Spencer Several years ago, uh, Richard Spencer, again, a white nationalist, was scheduled to speak at Auburn University, and the university wanted to not allow him to speak. A court said, no, the university has to allow him to speak. But there was actually some violence that erupted after that. No one luckily was killed like what happened at Virginia. But in light of that, institutions have had to look at their policies for when outside speakers can come to campus. And so there's been some talk about, and for instance, Texas A&M University, after Spencer was there, changed their policy. 
I think Auburn University, if they hadn't changed it, they were looking at it. But in all these contexts, if, if a forum has been existed for speakers, either for invited speakers or even if the university has opened, opened up a forum to outside speakers, generally under the First Amendment, outside of some particular exceptions like true threats, the university cannot engage in the business of picking and choosing what views that it likes. So, I, I mean, one of the questions I have that comes up is that the distinction between a true threat and speech, like that line, I would imagine, is quite blurry. It can be blurry in the sense that, again, when rhetoric is has, has crossed that line, and I do think that's something that institutions, as they've kind of become the societal focal point for a lot of these speech disputes. I mean, think about it. There are a lot of public places that these groups could decide that they want to go and show up and have events. No one's saying we're going to head to the DMV. That is that the DMV parking lot is where we want to have our major protest. It shows the importance of society uh, to higher education and society to colleges and universities. So colleges and universities have been targeted for particular reasons. And, and we've seen an escalation in the last several years by certain groups um, th- that are doing that. And I do think that um, after what happened at the University of Virginia, institutions have had to quickly ramp up how sophisticated they are about that. Now, I, I think one could say uh, one of the, the components has been in that is actually, I think, for instance, campus law enforcement or even campus security, coordinating with local and state law enforcement officials to actually get background on these individuals. One of the things that you'll hear about when you have speakers like this coming to campus is actually engaging with them and reaching out to understand what their motives are, to understand events that may have happened. But one of the things I think that that can cause consternation is that the idea of a true threat is something that could be restricted under the First Amendment is not that actually the individual has Maybe they don't even have an intention of carrying out the threat, but if they're if they are targeting particular individuals or groups, and it is an actual credible threat of harm or physical violence, then I think institutions absolutely can and should take action. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that you would have adv- advocacy groups like the ACLU or Fire certainly. Uh, they're not going to. They're not going to. They're not going to argue with that. Where things get a little hazier tends to be often, for instance, under the disruption standard. And so, for instance, recently at the University of Arizona, you had a group of students that were referred to as the Arizona Three. There were a group of ICE officers that were speaking on campus. The students wanted to engage in some kind of protest or disruption of that somewhat, although it looks like. The presentation by the ICE officers was allowed to continue. The protesters followed the officers, at least somewhat, to their car, and the students were arrested. And initially, there were criminal charges filed against the protesters. As I understand it, those charges have now been dropped. But that that has also tended to be, there's the threat issue, but I think the disruption issue especially is where a lot of colleges and universities are trying to decide at what point should we, for instance, have individuals arrested? Or at what point is this really in the educational realm? And at most, we're really looking at maybe the student conduct process or also the fact that 
this is, again, educational. We have students who are very engaged in what they're doing. Maybe we should take a step back, and before we say our, our first option is to engage in some kind of discipline, maybe this is an educational moment. Mm. I remember not too many years ago, there was a lot of angst over the fact that college students were not engaged. They were passive. They didn't care. And so now, guess what? We have a lot of college students who care. <laughs> maybe maybe very engaged. Too engaged for some people's likings, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's, that's it. It's like, we want you to be active and engaged, but don't do it so much that it makes us uncomfortable or disruptive. Mm. Colleges and universities are really, they're, they're, they're mimicking or they're mirroring what's happening in society. There's just a lot of tension. There is um, a lot of disagreement. And so for institutions, I, don't, I think it's very hard when students have this passion. And I'm, I'm now really speaking of students. I'm not speaking of external speakers. But for our student population, I think we have to be careful to be too legalistic or to react too harshly to the fact that students are engaged in this process of activism and discovery. And so, for instance, that's why I advocate if students were to take over an administrative building. I don't think the first option is that you call the police and have people arrested for trespassing. I think your first option is you talk, you engage. And hopefully through that process, in addition to listening to the students and the issues they're bringing out, it's also a chance for the students to consider what are the appropriate forms of activism? How, when should we take certain action? When should we not? Now, I also though think that we're, we're just in a period of where there's a re-examination of what speech standards should be. The United States, um, under our federal constitution, and a lot of private institutions have adopted very robust free speech principles. This isn't exactly the same that all countries do. So for instance, in France and Germany, you can have certain kinds of speech in France, anti-Semitic speech, certainly in Germany, images or speech related to Nazism can be restricted. Uh, you have libel laws in the UK that are much more friendly for individuals suing under those laws. And so it's not that I'm saying that the United States automatically needs to change what it's doing, but you certainly have a group of students and scholars and others who are saying also, we, we maybe need to re-examine some of our free speech standards, prioritizing our free speech standards and ignoring other kinds of standards, such as um, a commitment to diversity, inclusivity. And so I, I think that that is a divide that's happening and it's something that's playing out intellectually. But I would also say as someone who is an advocate of free speech, well, that's what we advocate all the time, exploring mm. and testing ideas. And that's also happening with what should speech standards be. So, for instance, it was really interesting. Uh, in the last year or so, you've had two really prominent constitutional law scholars, um, Robert Post at Yale and then uh, Erin Chemerinsky, and they both wrote these op-eds where they really took different views of how free speech should play out on campus. So these are two very distinguished scholars who are offering different viewpoints for this. So, so I do think that these ideas are also being they're being contested in a way that we'll see that the st some of the students who don't want certain kinds of speakers on campus, one day they're going to be the judges and the attorneys, mm -hmm. and they may challenge how these standards should work. So we've been talking a lot about public schools, and I know you mentioned that some private universities have taken very broad interpretations of what free speech looks like on campus. But 
are private universities held to a different standard when it comes to free speech in a legal manner? In general, they, they, they very much are held to a different standard. So I talked about that public colleges and universities, they're governmental actors, state actors. So that puts an, a responsibility on them to follow First Amendment rules in regulating speech, especially student speech or other speech on campus. Private colleges and universities don't have to do that. And we see that, for instance, with religious private institutions. They can have a mission that will state that, um, you know, individuals enrolled in that institution or teach in that institution have to sign statements of faith. And so they're actually, as private entities, they also have First Amendment protections related to speech and religion that allow them to carry out their mission. The only real exception we have in California, they have a law called the, the Leonard Law that it applies to private secular institutions and requires that private secular institutions have to give the same speech rights to students as do public institutions under the First Amendment. But in general, private colleges and universities have much more legal leeway, and some institutions give much less discretion to students and their speech rights. But there are a lot of private colleges and universities that view freedom of expression and speech as really integral to part of what what the institution is supposed to be about. And so in their policies and other guiding principles, they give free speech, freedom of speech that's very akin to the First Amendment. You'll sometimes hear about the University of Chicago principles on free speech a lot recently. So University of Chicago is a great institution. It's also private. And so private colleges and universities, where a legal responsibility would come in for them is if in their standards, for instance, and policies pertaining to students, if there's a statement, we believe in free speech rights, we don't regulate speech on the basis of viewpoint, but then they would in fact do that, a student could have a a contract-based claim. In general, colleges and universities for all types of institutions, but it's especially important for private institutions, when they look at the student and the university and maybe they're in a bit of dispute, they'll apply contract-like principles. And so if you think about student handbooks or other things like that, that's part of the contract. So institutions have a legal responsibility to follow the terms they've set out in the contracts and student disciplinary codes, student handbooks, and other places. It's such a fascinating topic because it seems like what we're debating is actually the purpose of higher education, whether it's an area where a diversity of speech can exist, whether there's threats and how do they, you know, how they're articulated, um, things like student activism. I mean, it really seems like these debates are so vital and important to the very foundations of what we mean by higher education. I think that's right, and that's why you know I noted earlier that when you have groups and protesters, they don't head down to the DMV in large, most of the time. I'm sure there are protests that happen at the DMV, probably spontaneously at times. Just anger, just absolute anger. But Turning Point USA has not pushed for the president to issue an executive order um, about the DMV and, and freedom of speech. So these are special places and institutions. I really think they're a battle place for ideas and values. And so just as our society right now is very polarized, these ideas and values are playing out on our college campuses. I also think one thing to note about 
a lot of these um, speech debates that are happening is they're really only one kind of the speech that happens on college campuses. So, for instance, uh, I'm a faculty member. I had to go through a process called tenure, and I had to publish as part of that. And in that process, while I may think that I view that there were some important speech rights, including under the First Amendment, it wasn't unfettered. So one of the things in general, our free speech for the government is that it doesn't engage in evaluating ideas. But if I'm a chemistry professor, my colleagues who are evaluating me for tenure and promotion, they absolutely evaluate my ideas. If they think they're rubbish, I may not get tenured. If they think that what I'm teaching is incorrect, um, I can be in trouble. Likewise, in the classroom, free speech doesn't exist in the same way as it does outside of the classroom. If I'm a student who does not believe in evolution and I want to be a biology major and I'm taking a class that is dealing with a section with biology and I'm asked about evolution and my response is everything was created in six days. My free speech rights protect me for saying that. No, that's not how it works. And courts have been very consistent that in certain circumstances, college and universities and professors and administrators, we can actually heavily regulate speech. And so I think in our, our one of the things in this universe of free speech debates on campus is to realize that actually a lot of speech that does take place in higher education is supposed to be of a certain kind, of a certain quality. That's why we have concepts like peer review, so things can be vetted, they can be tested. And, and so I think that that sometimes doesn't necessarily get recognized the nuance of all the different kinds of speech um, that happens on our college campuses. And a lot of the protests and other things, and I think this is part of the debate of college campuses, is to what extent should our college campuses just be kind of the general um, public forum for debate? In other words, you show up, you get to say whatever you want. There's no evaluation of quality of that. And I think you certainly have some groups and entities um, that would say at least part of the college campus, that's absolutely what it needs to be. I think where we're seeing somewhat of a pushback is that you have other, you have other advocates for certain kinds of values, including the educational mission, say these things don't align with the educational mission. And if we look at that educational mission, we evaluate the quality of speech and ideas every day. Students don't earn certain grades because of the quality of the speech, because the ideas are deemed bad or shoddy. People go to conferences, academic conferences, or they present on campus. Um, I know that when I've presented in front of peers, including at campus talks, People disagree with me and they tell me those are really bad ideas that you have, Hutchins. And that's that's part of what we do. And, and we actually don't treat all ideas as exactly equivalent. I mean, that's part of this um, in the, the scientific process, for instance. You're mm -hmm. testing things. You're, you're, you're looking for those answers. And so I do think, though, then it becomes an interesting question that really has been pushed to the fore then in this in this environment of higher education in which ideas are actually often heavily contested and people actually are evaluated for their speech and ideas, you know, they maybe don't earn the highest grade in the class. Maybe they submit a dissertation or another paper that has to be revised, or maybe someone doesn't get tenure or they don't get a job 
Well, then how much are we just the general public sphere where there is no no evaluation of the ideas? And so Robert Post, who I talked about earlier, who is at Yale Law, Yale Law School, a leading person writing on academic freedom and constitutional law, he really thinks institutions have gone too far in just saying part of our job is to just be this general place for free speech and expression. We need to push back against that. We need to question with student groups and others, what's your educational purpose for having this speech on campus? And so I do think that's a countervailing push that we've seen against some of the free speech movement. And, you know, what will be interesting to see in five or 10 years, do we see some change in, in how, how some of the rules work? Or do we actually just open it up more is um, in terms of what we've seen, for instance, under certain states and state laws that have been passed. Well, I, for one, am going to keep following your work over the next five to 10 years to see what ends up happening. Neil Hutchins, thank you so much for joining Head. It really was a pleasure to talk today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Neil Hutchins serves as professor and chair in the University of Mississippi School of Education's Department of Higher Education. He regularly writes for the online magazine, The Conversation. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with the Education Law Association. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.